Today I want to invite you to turn uh, in your Bible to the book of Jude, the book of Jude, which is located right before the book of Revelation. So if you find, go to the end, you find Revelation, just turn just one page to the left or one swipe to the left. Uh, This morning I want to spend our time together thinking about something that we all have, whether we know it or not. And something that is of utmost importance, uh, really a life or death issue, and that is this thing that we often refer to as a worldview. Now, exactly what is a worldview? Well, a worldview is, is a person's collection of presuppositions. It's a collection of convictions and values from which a person attempts to understand and to make sense out of the world and out of life. Ronald Nash, in his book titled Faith and Reason, states that a worldview is a conceptual scheme by which we consciously or unconsciously place or fit everything that we believe and by which we interpret and judge reality. Gary Phillips and William Brown, in their book, Making Sense of Your World from a Biblical Viewpoint, they say this, they say, a worldview is, first of all, an explanation and interpretation of the world, and second, an application of this view to life. And as I said, we all have one, but as Philip Johnson has noted, he says, understanding worldview is a bit like trying to see the lens of one's own eye. We do not ordinarily see our own worldview, but we see everything, everything else by looking through it, which is why it's so important, I think, for for us to understand because it colors the way all people interpret life, and it triggers the decisions that we make and drives really a person's response to everything, everyday decisions regarding time and money relationships, health care and work, government and morality, everyday responses to things like betrayal or success, to natural disasters and threats of terrorism or in, in times of peace or even in times of calm, all of those things we experience, our, world, our worldview drives those, those kinds of responses to those circumstances and situations. Good news or bad, it really doesn't matter. Every expectation and every response, everything that you do and everything that is done to you will be viewed through this grid, this collection of beliefs and convictions known as your worldview. So whether you're seven years, years old this morning or whether you're 77 years old, you, you have a worldview that is driving you to do what you do. And you do wish that others would adopt your worldview, whatever that happens to be. Why do we do that? Because it it protects, it it preserves what we believe ought to be protected and preserved. It it, it reveals the things that are important to us, the, the values. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher in his work, The Will to Power, an attempt at the revaluation of all values... He said this, he says, I regard Christianity as the most fatal and seductive lie that has ever yet existed, as the greatest and most impious lie. And then he goes on and says this, he says, I decline to enter into any compromise or false position in reference to it, and I urge people to declare open war with it. So it evidently was, was not enough for him to simply have a worldview, but to push others to embrace it, which, which really raises this question, why can't there be several worldviews that, that work together, that, that sort of coexist, that, that, that sort of function together in harmony? Well, that, that sounds nice. The reality, the reality is, though, that it just doesn't, just doesn't happen just won't happen. You might even think that your worldview isn't above the others. So you imagine this, you imagine this, you see this bumper sticker 
uh, very frequently on the road. You imagine that there's just all these different worldviews and ideas and belief systems can, can work together, that's, that can sort of coexist. And then I found this, this, this other one, the um, Avengers or Marvel's comics. Um, but what really happens looks more like this, right? This one here. Or at least some other version of this, right? Because one of these eventually attempts, just by default, it attempts to topple the, the others. So, so you might claim that your worldview it itself is one that allows all worldviews to coexist in harmony, but in doing that, you've just excluded all of those who don't believe that their worldview can coexist with other worldviews. So in the end, your worldview is exclusive. And the truth is you would live by it and die by it. But the big question for us, I think, this, this morning is, in the end, in the end, does your worldview actually deliver what you hope for? Or as, or, or as your worldview brings you what you hope for, and as it brings you what you long for, will it have delivered truth and substance or lies and vanity, and futility, and meaninglessness? That's really the question. And in a clear and a bold way, the Bible gives to us a worldview that claims to be the only worldview that delivers wisdom and truth, ultimate satisfaction, eternal life. And we have an example of this, I think, at the end of this short letter from Jude, who was a half-brother of of Jesus. And Jude is is writing sometime, most likely between A.D. 68 and and the year uh, 70. Uh, He's dealing with um, the, the arrival of false teachers in the early church. At this point, Christianity was not only under severe political attack from Rome, but Even more serious was the aggressive spiritual infiltration from false teachers who sowed seeds of doctrinal and moral error in the church. So in a very direct and in a very compact way, Jude calls for discernment on the part of the church and and a rigorous defense of biblical truth, charging them to contend for the faith in the midst of intense spiritual warfare and to confront the threat of apostasy and those marked by futile and false teaching, personal corruption, and fruitless ministries. But at the end of this epistle, notice what we find. We find here an expression of worship. And in this expression of worship, Jude lays out for us what we might call a a truth-filled worldview, a wise worldview, a trustworthy worldview. Worldview. Let me read for us beginning in verse 24. It's from the English Standard Version. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Now, it obviously, obviously doesn't lay out uh, like, like a worldview lecture. It doesn't come to us in some sort of propositional form or some uh, didactic statement, nor does it come in the form of a set of teachings or principles like Jude has given us in, in these other and earlier verses. Rather, it is an expression of worship to God. It is what we often refer to as a doxology. You'll notice the word both in verses 40, 24 and in 25, the word glory. It's the Greek word doxa from which we get our term doxology. It's, it's simply put, it's praise. That is what is going on here. It is, it is, it is praise, plain and simple praise, adoration, Worship. 
It's an expression of worship at, at the end of this brief but inspired letter. But embedded in this expression of praise is the framework for the only way that we should view life in this world. It is Jude's worldview. It is from God, and it is the only worldview that delivers truth and eternal joy. Now, every worldview has some common components. These components are all the same, regardless of the worldview. They all have the same basic parts. Every worldview has an assumed source of authority. Every worldview has has a source of authority that is assumed, an assumed source of authority that is ultimate. We sometimes refer to it as our presuppositions, which are beliefs that an individual presumes to be true without supporting independent evidence from other systems or sources. And every worldview on the front end assumes a source of authority. Second, every, every worldview has a promised result for its adherence. That is to say, with every worldview, there is something attractive to adopting that particular worldview and, and using it as a guide to help you through life. So it, it, is, it is promising a result to those who are followers of it. Third, every worldview has an access to knowledge or a path to gaining the knowledge that is necessary for faithful adherence. In other words, there's a, there is some place or way of gaining the knowledge that holds you in this worldview and then tells you that you ought to stay. So there's access to knowledge for every worldview. And then fourth, every worldview has a required way of life, which means that every worldview, for those convinced of it, takes those inward beliefs, those inward convictions, and works them out, right? They work those things out in, in uh, everyday life in some, in some required way of, of living. That is how this worldview thing plays out. Now, with all that in mind, what, what can we learn about Jude's worldview from his doxology? And what, what are the components, you might say, of a, let's, we're going to call this a doxological worldview. What are the components of a doxological worldview? Again, there are four of them, and I'll, we'll begin just simply with the source, source of authority. You'll notice that in verse 24, Jude begins verse 24 by saying, now to him. And then verse 25, he says, to the only God, our Savior, be glory. This is Jude's presupposed source of authority in this worldview that he presents to us here as he worships. Jude's Jude's worship here is directed to his presupposed source of authority for his worldview. Everything in his belief system goes back to the foundation of the creator of all things. Carl Henry said this, he says, quote, evangelical theology dares harbor one and only one presupposition, the living and personal God intelligibly known in his revelation. Here's the presupposition in the Christian worldview that drives everything. This is the one presupposition that believers have, a living and personal God intelligibly known through what he has chosen to reveal to humanity. That is to say, Christians presuppose God. Christians presuppose God. As Jude says, the only God, monotheo, the only one in a particular class and the, God, and, the, and the God that has no cause. Everything else is something that has been created, therefore it has a cause. But God has no cause. He is the eternal God. As he says in verse 25, before all time and now and forever. God is, is in a, a permanent state of perfection in his being. Or as Paul mentions at the end of Romans 11, we looked at this, this is actually another doxology as we were going through the series in Romans. We got to the end of chapter 11, and we have Paul's uh, doxology of sorts there by the Apostle Paul, and Paul basically says there that God is the ultimate source and origin of all things. That God is the ultimate authority over and sustaining power of all things. 
that he is the ultimate goal of all things. Therefore, if God reveals himself to creation, that revelation becomes compelling in a Christian worldview. If I, if I presuppose an eternal God as the ultimate authority, then I am naturally compelled by everything that God chooses to reveal to us. That is to say, if there is only one eternal and exclusively wise God, then I also presuppose that His revelation is the only way to know the way things really are. It's the only interpretation of what we encounter in this life. It's the only way to find true meaning and lasting satisfaction. Because what he reveals is truly wise. And whatever he reveals is infinitely true. This is the source of authority that we presuppose. That is why, that is why the Bible states in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Solomon goes on in Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So, are you searching for meaning? Are you searching for understanding? Do you want to understand life? Jude says here, essentially, the Christian worldview is the only right and reasonable explanation of it. Do you want to understand the fundamental issues of origin? Where we came from, meaning who we are and why we are here? Morality, destiny, the direction of history and the question about what lies beyond death? The Christian worldview is actually the most sensible, the most coherent, and the most consistent of all the perspectives out there, as well as the one that most corresponds with reality. And because God is infinite, because God is eternal and wise and the creator of everything else that exists, he then is the exclusive being in the universe who is worthy. Worthy to be revealed in all of his perfections and worthy to be honored by all of his creation. So every worldview has some presupposed source of authority. So if you're here this morning and you don't believe in God, then the question is, who or what is the source of ultimate authority for your worldview? Because there aren't that many alternatives. In fact, outside of God, there are only four stated sources of authority for every other worldview. There's, there's reason, your ability to, to reason things out. So so maybe you do what you do because you reason that it is consistent and coherent, or there's experience, so in you're, you're receiving everyday sensory data, and, and you interpret that data, and that becomes the authority for what you do and why you do it because you sense that that is coherent. Then there's tradition, which says that you do what you do because it, it is the coherent system that has been handed down to you. So it's really consensus among people that is authoritative, and then, or, or perhaps coercion. That is to say, you do what you do because you are coerced to follow what other people deem as coherent. We call it peer pressure. But in every one of these systems, notice, the authority is grounded in the creature rather than the presupposed, eternal, independent creator God. Human rationality or human interpretation or human agreement or human self-preservation is the source, not God. So if that is the case and you're here today and your worldview doesn't, doesn't presuppose an eternal God, then everything rests ultimately on you as the authority for all things that you believe. And if you get that wrong, the, the consequences are, are devastating. They're dire. James Nichol was right. He says, quote, If your answer to what is truth is wrong, you are going to be aberrant in every sphere of life. 
So if you don't presuppose an eternal God, listen, folks, that, that's, a lot, that's a lot on your shoulders. It's a lot on your shoulders to assume that you're the authority. That means that every decision that you make is on you. That means that every amount of influence that you exert on others is on you. That means that every decision that others make as a result of you trying to push your worldview on them, that's on you and is done on your personal authority alone. But if there is one God who is eternal, holy, and sovereign, but who is also Savior, as he says in verse 25, meaning he's not all, he not only has the right to and does demand righteousness from us, but he is also the one who provides the answer and can deliver us. If there is one God and he is holy, and he is sovereign, but he is also Savior, that changes everything. Now that leads us to this second component of Jude's doxological worldview, and that's the promised result. The promised result. The promised result to those who follow a particular worldview. You'll notice there in verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This verse is all about power. It's all about the power to get beyond what we experience here in this life and to get beyond the judgment to come. It's about being firmly fixed in in place by something outside of yourself. So you can try to fix yourself. Uh, you, you can try to set your own life in place. You can, you can attempt to be the one who gets yourself past these troubles and secures your own eternity. Most people today are going down that path. But Jude says... I am looking to the one who is able to firmly set me in place and you in place. The one, he says, who is able to keep you, which is a term that, 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 that has to do with guarding, and not just, a, not just guarding, but a sense of intimacy, so it's a, it's a guarding closely, it's, it's, a, it's a protecting in a very uh, uh, close range, if you will, setting. So God has the ability to do this. He has the ability to guard closely and to protect your salvation. And to keep you, as he says, from stumbling, from falling into error, because again, Jude's spent most of his time in this particular epistle dealing with false teaching and the influence of false teachers. And the reality is, folks, that as we look around our world, and it's not just the suffering, it's not just the natural disasters and those things that we experience in, in our life, but it's, it's, it's seeing the apostasy. It's seeing people reject the truth. It's, it's seeing people that maybe even at one time professed to receive the truth and to believe the truth, but who are now rejecting it. And when you face those kinds of times, it, it rattles you. It, it disturbs you when that happens. And yet, Jude gives us this comfort, this promise that God is able to keep you from falling into error. He, he is able to keep you from falling to the temptation of apostasy. He's able to keep you, to protect you against your own frailty. And notice, he says, not only that, but he's also able to present you blameless. Again, this is the idea of setting, setting you in, in, in a place to make you stand without fault or without reproach at the judgment. Or, as he says, before the presence of his glory. That is what God is able to do. 
to present you unblemished in glory. Psalm 1.5 says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment. But Jude, lifting his voice in praise, declares that all of those whom God has called and cleansed and protected will in that day stand with great joy, with intense joy, with intense gladness, which refers primarily to the joy of God, this divine joy of the Father and the Son over our fellowship with other believers. We, We experience that. We'll be partakers of that. In fact, you could take verse 24, and this would be a possible translation, just sort of putting all of this together. Now to him who is powerfully able to guard you closely and protect you from faltering in the path of truth and to place you before his glory, transformed and approved, and who does it with intense joy, a joy that he will share with the redeemed in that day and for all eternity. What a promise. What a promise. A promise that drives us to praise. A promise that drives us and and directs us even in our prayers. Listen to the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. He says, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Why pray for that? Why pray that God would do that? Why pray that God would establish our hearts? Why pray that God would establish them blameless in holiness before God at the coming of the Lord Jesus? Because God is able to do that. God is able to fix your heart immovably before Him as righteous and holy. To fix you spiritually for eternity in such a way that you will never be condemned. Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, but, but what, about, what about evil? What about evil? What about all those threats? What about that? What about the error? What about the false teachers? What about their influence? What about all those things that come to us via this this world and the ruler of this world? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul said, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So your faith cannot be crushed. When you believe in this God, your life cannot be snuffed out, wiped out. Your eternity cannot be taken away because our God who is faithful, who is the originator and source of my worldview, protects me from evil. Yes, I experience sin. I experience sin in my life. Yes, I experience suffering and affliction and pain in this life, but never to the extent that it will stop or thwart the purpose of God. Never to that extent. Now, what happens if you reject a Christian worldview? Well, you still have to deal with the brokenness. (laughs) I mean, you can't escape that. You still have to deal with that. You still have to find some way of navigating the misery and the effects of a fallen world and a fallen heart. The problem is you have no power. You have no power. So you talk yourself into believing that things are going to get better in this life or that a greater greater, uh, species of of man is coming or that that there's some sort of greater reality that, that, that awaits us that is coming. After all, we've got all these advancements, right? I mean, we're so smart. We're so savvy. We're... We're so cutting edge, right? The possibilities are endless of what man can do if we can just self-actualize, right? If we could just get rid of those people in our lives that are sort of dragging us down and holding us back, if we could just, just be better stewards of our environment, 
If we could just do all of these things, right? That, then then that's, that's what would help us, right? That's what would give us hope. That's what would turn this around. Well, folks, the reality is things are not getting better. They're not getting better. You just read Romans 1. You could read 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, the, the, the epistle of Jude itself, the book of Revelation. You, you can hope that things are getting better, or, you, or maybe you can just try to change the standard. Maybe you could redefine sin, or you, you can think, try to thinking all the positive thoughts that you, that you want, but things are not evolving. Suffering is a reality. It's a reality. There's nothing new under the sun. We live in a Genesis 3 world, outside of the garden, this side of eternity. Hurricane Harvey and Irma are realities. Your sin and your selfishness and pride are realities. Your strained relationships and conflict are realities. And it's only the Christian worldview that faithfully deals with these realities. The Christian worldview acknowledges that we live in a broken world. And it explains the reason for this brokenness that God cursed this creation because of sin and that man is born with a sin nature. But with that come a flood of promises to those who believe. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, and, oft, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Establish you how? Establishing you in the truth. He would go on in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse, verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. You have these things. You have the truth. So if I believe in this eternal God and I presuppose Him to be the ultimate authority and I commit to follow Him, then I now gain access to all that He has promised. And He has promised truth, not lies. And that truth, Peter says, is present with me from the moment I believe all the way to the end. This is the promise of Jude's worldview. God establishes Christians in the truth, and He keeps them in it through the troubles and the pains of this life. And He protects them from every destructive force and preserves their faith. And He does it by giving them the power of His Spirit to live in an increasingly holy life until Christ comes again. Progressive sanctification, growing in holiness, Growing in Christ's likeness. Listen, no other world view can establish you. No other worldview can establish you. No other worldview can guard you permanently now and forever. Now there is a path to gaining that knowledge. There's always a path to gaining knowledge in any Worldview And Jude spells out the path to gaining what is promised in his doxological worldview. And that's our third point here. It's access to, access to knowledge. And he, he mentions it there in verse 25. He says, to the only God, our Savior. And then notice this phrase in the ESV. It says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is to say, Jesus is the intermediate agent. So in Jude's worldview, as he worships God here, God rescues and permanently establishes Christians through powerful means. He does it via the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Word of God that has revealed Christ to us. This is his reference back to verse 3. He talks about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and the eternal will of God to save sinners in Christ. There it is. The access to the promise of the worldview Jude is spelling out comes by these means. The work of Christ, 
the word that has revealed him and the eternal will of God in the councils of eternity that said, yes, I will save sinners in Christ. That is how it is done. This is the heart and the soul of Jude's worldview. It's the only path by which a sinner can be saved and put in a place of forever fellowship with God. It is by the preaching of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. The perfect and sinless life of Jesus Christ. Because no corrupt human being could ever live a sinless life. The perfect and holy sacrifice of Jesus. Because no corrupt human being could ever could ever pay or offer to pay for their own sin and that ever be enough. And the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ as the ultimate proof that death has no sting for those who are in Christ. Because no corrupt human being could ever conquer death. So the Christian worldview begins and ends with the sinless life and perfect sacrifice of Christ and His resurrection, which is the exclamation point. That is to say, the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that God is the source of all authority. Which means that, yes, anyone could make up some ridiculous and crazy idea of God and then foolishly follow that, but the concept of God and the presupposed source of authority that Jude is presenting here is verified and validated and proven by the fact of the resurrection. Because God the Father said that He would raise His Son from the dead, and He did. You see, the resurrection is the proof that God can permanently guard believers with His power. And you find this connection throughout the New Testament and the epistles. The the power that was on display in raising Jesus Christ from the dead and the power that has been given to us via the Holy Spirit. Access to that power. Resurrection is the proof that God can protect believers from stumbling and place them in His own presence without fault, that He can establish believers in this life and the next. The resurrection is the proof that the Scriptures are true. It is the proof that God's purpose to save sinners in the truth is His wisdom. There is no other worldview that is true. It's all lies and deception outside of this worldview. That is what secures my hope, the person of Christ, the person of Christ. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, and they all converge in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. And while Jesus walked this this planet, he lived a life open to examination People around him witnessed his conduct and his character and heard him speak. They witnessed his gruesome death. And hundreds witnessed his resurrection. So Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That is to say, it would go against all reason to not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, considering the eyewitness testimonies alone. Jesus Christ is alive from the dead, and he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and he is our Lord. Jude says. He's not just the Lord, he's he's ours. So Jude mentions the source of authority, he mentions the promised result, he mentions the path of gaining what is promised, and he mentions, fourthly, the required way of life. The required way of life. Notice the end of verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, praise, honor, majesty, which is a word for greatness, importance, 
dominion. This is a, a word that has to do with strength or the power to control or the power to, to rule. And authority, which is really has to do with the right to use such power. And then he ends with this, before all time and now and forever. It's just a, it's an expression really where Jude is reaching back and saying from all ages, literally from all ages past, or from some translations I think say from the beginning of time, and now and into all the ages... So he's now reaching into the future. It's just, it's just basically, it, we, we might translate it this way, from eternity past to eternity future. And in the Greek text, there is no verb to be. So it reads something like this, to the only God, glory. To the only God, glory, majesty, dominion. And authority, which is both a worshipful statement of fact and a worshipful expression of longing. The statement of fact would be this To him belongs glory. In other words, we're, we're, we are heralding the truth in worship God is glorious, whether you see it or not. Whether you see it or not, God has it and He displays it. He is glorious. On the other hand, the expression of longing would be more of this nature. It would be, may glory be given to Him. Now back to our point. What is it that God requires of us? Well, simply put, it's faith. Faith. Faith in We go back to our previous three points, right? Faith in who God is, faith in His promises, faith in His Son. Hebrews 11.6 tells us this, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So simply put, faith pleases God. Faith pleases God, and faith glorifies God. Here's the connection. And the Apostle Paul really makes this point over in the book of Romans, emphasizing that salvation from sin and death and judgment that that Christ brings is received by faith. And then illustrating this faith with the case of Abraham, he does this in in Romans chapter 4, and shows how it relates to the glory of God. So he actually takes the concept of faith and ties it together with with this idea of glorifying God. He does this in in Romans 4, beginning in verse 13. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope... This is Abraham. He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but notice this, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith, verse 22, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised 
from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So why is faith the way that God saves us? Why faith? Because faith calls attention to and magnifies the glory of God. How does it do that? By putting us in the position of weak and dependent and putting God in the position of strong and independent and merciful. Some will say, well, how can it be that easy? Right? I mean, in our own self-righteousness, right, we... We, we want to earn it. I mean, isn't this just the, the bent of, 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 of the depraved heart, right? Isn't this just the, this just the natural inclination of, of, a, of, of a non-Christian, an unbeliever? We want to earn it. We can do this, right? But that is just our rebellion. You know why we want to earn it? Because it, it, is, it is our nature. It is our nature to exalt ourselves and to worship ourselves. We want to earn it because we think we can. But that is the way of the fool. All that is called salvation comes by one means, and it has nothing to do with your own intrinsic value, your own worth, or your accomplishments. What the gospel calls us to and what the resurrection cries out for us to do is to entrust ourselves to what has been done by Christ. Christ alone is perfect. Christ alone can offer himself as a payment. Christ alone has the power over death. You and I never will. Believing in Christ, believing in Christ is the only way to know truth. It is the only way to lay hold of the promises of God to forgive your sins, to guard your life, and to give you a right standing in His holy presence. So what about you? Which worldview are you living by? Which worldview are you passing down to the next generation? Which worldview are you passing down to your children? Or to your grandchildren. You live by one every day. We all do. And you presuppose an authority behind that worldview. And that worldview promises you that it is going to make sense out of life and all the harsh realities of life. And then the gaining of access to those promises, there's a source of knowledge that you trust. Maybe it's your own thinking, maybe it's tradition, maybe it's just on any given day how you feel. But those things will not and cannot deliver on what you think that they promise. There's only one worldview that is truth and wisdom. And it doesn't come by works or human effort. And it doesn't come by reason alone. And it doesn't come by human intuition. And it doesn't come necessarily by what was handed down to you from your family. It comes by faith. By faith. Self-abandonment and total entrustment in the preaching of Jesus Christ that says that he would take care of the sin problem because he alone can take care of the sin problem. This isn't just Jude's worldview. This is God's worldview. It is, it is the biblical worldview. It's the only one that is coherent, it is the only one that, is tr- that truly deals with the brokenness that we see and know and experience. And it's the only one that will deliver what it promises. Peace, joy, a clear conscience, forgiveness, life, lasting satisfaction and contentment. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is no crutch. The Christian worldview is an anchor that keeps you from being blown away. The frustrations of the curse, all the evil in this world, the injustices, the calamities, our own sin and our own weaknesses, 
These are the things that we deal with every day. But if we view life through this lens of truth, and this lens, if you will, this doxological lens, this lens of praise, we will stand by God's grace. God is able to make us stand. We will stand because we have a biblical worldview. And for eternity, we will stand, as as the hymn writer said, stand amazed in his presence. Stand amazed in God's presence forever. To him, glory. To him, majesty. To him, dominion. To him, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, today we confess that you are the one who is intrinsically holy and righteous, that we are naturally wicked and proud. You are the one who is in sovereign control over all things, All of history, every storm, every victory, every person. We are but creatures who are finite, helpless, and weak. You are the one worthy of all praise, and we are the ones who deserve hell for trying to steal the praise and the glory, for worshiping ourselves rather than honoring you. Lord, thank you for being so long-suffering with us, for being merciful, for sending your Son to pay for our sins. May we believe and keep believing what you have revealed to us about him through your word. May we submit to the truth. As Jude says, may we contend for it. Contend for the truth. Contend for the faith. May we keep ourselves in the love of God, but always knowing that you are the one who guards and you are the one that protects, protecting us from falling. May we have this kind of worldview that Jude had, that our lives would be a fragrant offering acceptable and pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen.